Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. Good morning, everyone. My name's Dave, and it's my privilege to read the Bible to us now. As we've been looking at this dangerous vision, uh, this image, this account of what God is doing in the world, and as Ben's about to preach to us on that, we are today reading from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. If you've got one of the blue church Bibles like this, it should be on page 882. And it's also going to be up on the screen behind me. So let's read from God's Word. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to him, them, it is not for you to know the times or dates that the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up from them, taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Amen. Amen. Let's pray and then um, we'll look at this passage. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, that we can gather uh, together again this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who speaks to us. Um, and we see that in your word, Lord. We pray that as we open up the Bible this morning, that you would challenge us and change us and that you would help us understand what's going on. We pray that we would walk out today different people than the ones who walked in because we have met with the living God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So at um, Southside Youth this term, we've been doing the life course. The life course is what we've been running here at church as well uh, on Sundays at lunchtime. And throughout the life course, you get a chance to listen to content, to discuss it, and to ask questions. But we thought at youth, what we would do is instead of asking questions each week, that we would leave it to the end. And in week seven, we would do a week called Grill a Leader. Now, Grill a Leader is this moment where the kids get to ask, the, the teenagers get to ask any question about God or Christianity that they've really ever had or that the life course has brought up. And the leaders have this opportunity to kind of squirm and, you know, just adapt to what's being given to them as they answer it. And so it was my joy on Friday night to be the MC of Grilla Leader as I sat between the kids' questions 
and the leaders trying to answer. Now, it was, uh, our teenagers did an amazing job. They asked some really good questions, and our leaders did an awesome job as well at answering that. Um, and we got all sorts of questions. You know, we got some really tricky ones, like, how does God make different people with different hair colors and eye colors and skin colors? Got, the leader, got to watch the leaders try and answer that one. Uh, there were also, you know, good questions like, um, how do I invite my friend along? Um, th- I mean, this sounds like a planted question, but it wasn't. How do I invite my friend to Southside Youth when they believe in something else? Great question. There were other ones. But my favorite question of the night, as I was sitting there watching, was the question uh, that someone asked, how do we know that God is real? How do we know that God's real? Now, this was my favorite question because when I was a teenager, this was my question. See, I grew up kind of knowing about Jesus, um, but often would get into conversations with people and eventually would get to the point in the conversation of where's the proof? How do you actually know that God is real? And so when someone asked this question, in, in some sense I felt, you know, warmed and comforted. I wasn't the only one who asked this question. But in another way, I also realized that when we think about that question, you know, how do we know that God is real, we can understand, you know, that our teenagers and that me as a teenager, not alone in that. That's a pretty normal question. In fact, you might have asked that question before. How do we actually know? How can we tell that God, the God of the Bible, is real? How can we be confident in that? Well, what we're going to do today is we're going to enter into this moment in history where we kind of see God speak into this where we see God reveal himself and show himself, and we pick it up where we had read out for us before in Acts chapter 1, in this moment of history where God kind of shows himself. And this is how we see it unfold. It begins in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. He says this, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So how do we know that God's real? Well, what we're going to see in this passage is two ways that we know that God's real, two ways that he reveals himself and shows himself. Number one is through the proof of the resurrection, and number two is the power of the Holy Spirit. But we begin with the first one, the proof of the resurrection. Luke is the guy who's writing here, and he says there is convincing proof that Jesus is alive. Now, as we understand this point here, the proof of the resurrection, we do have to ground ourselves a little in the nature of this book. So Acts, we see it there in the first few verses. Acts is written, I mean, we don't see it there, but written by a guy called Luke to another guy called Theophilus. Right, And he's written a couple of books to Luke, uh, to Theophilus. Luke has written a couple of books. The first book was the book of Luke. The second book was the book of Acts. And in Luke, he was writing to give Theophilus certainty about the things that he's heard. So what Luke was doing then was he was going around speaking to eyewitnesses, making sure that what Theophilus had heard about Jesus was actually true. That was what Luke was doing. He was a doctor, a physician, and that was his job. And what he did was one by one go around, talk to eyewitnesses, and see if what Theophilus heard was actually true. So he says, "Um, I wrote the first book. That was, you know, what Jesus began to do. Which, you know, if we think about that word, just that word begin or beginning, right? How good is it? The, The book of Luke was just the beginning. That whole thing where God entered into the world and saved humanity. You know, that whole thing where Jesus died on the cross and rose again. That was simply the beginning. Now, Luke says, I'm continuing to show you what unfolded. I want to show you the continuation of what God is doing in this world. 
and it begins with proof. It begins with proof. He says in verse 3, we see it there. He says, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. In fact, he, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Luke says to Theophilus, my experience of talking to these eyewitnesses over and over and over again, my experience of that is it's pretty convincing. There is convincing proof that Jesus did rise from the dead over a period of 40 days. Now, as you hear that, you know, convincing proof of Jesus' resurrection, what do you feel? Right? What thoughts run through your head? I mean, he was talking to eyewitnesses. What's your reaction to those eyewitnesses? See, I think often what we can do is we can fall into the trap, you know, today in the information age of just thinking that people back then were more gullible. You know, we've got more books than we've ever had before. We've got documentaries. We've got the internet. You know, we know more about any, anything than anyone's known in history. We're not gullible. You know, we don't believe in weird conspiracy theories and that mermaids exist and stuff like that. That's not us. Online, you can find that stuff out. <laughs> no, people back then, they're gullible. <laughs> now, obviously, I mean, even as you think about that, you know, and the weird things that come through the internet, we can see that that's not true, but there are a few other problems with this idea that back then they were just simply more gullible. And one of the problems with this is the nature of the disciples. See, with the disciples, what we see is a group of people who weren't going to easily fold to this idea that Jesus was alive. They saw him die on the cross. They witnessed him being killed. They're not going to easily change their mind in that. In fact, remember last week, if you were with us, we saw there's this moment on this hill where Jesus appears to the disciples and we see their reactions, some worshipped and some doubted. You know, some doubted in that moment. They wanted to know more. They wanted confirmation. They wanted to be clear, is, is Jesus really alive? We see these disciples weren't going to easily fold. Then we hear about another disciple in the book of John. John was also an eyewitness. He saw it and he wrote about Jesus. And in John, we get the story of Thomas. And I love Thomas. Because the, the, this account of Thomas, so the disciples are in this room, they lock the door in fear for their life, Jesus appears to them and then goes away and the disciples, who Thomas knows and you know, has been with for three years, says, we saw Jesus. And Thomas says, I don't believe you. Thomas says, unless I see with my own eyes, unless I touch you know, the holes in his hands, I'm not going to believe. The nature of the disciples is that these guys aren't gullible. Right? They're, not just, they're not just believing something because they heard something along the grapevine. No, they needed proof. And what Luke is doing for us in this moment is the hard work for us. He's doing the hard yards and he's speaking to one by one. He's talking to these eyewitnesses over and over again. And what he's finding out is that over and over again, their story matches. And he says, my experience of talking to the, uh, these eyewitnesses is it's convincing. There's substantial proof, he says. There is proof. So when we think about, you know, how do we know God's real? The first thing Luke shows us is that actually he showed himself. He entered into history. 2,000 years ago, he entered into this moment of history where he appeared, where Jesus did things only God could do, where he performed miracles, said big things, made big claims, died on a cross for his claims to be God, but then rose from the dead. Then he appeared to people over 40 days. This is not a dream. This is not a hallucination. This did not happen in the back alley of, you know, something where you had to see it in this moment, this brief moment. It was a flash. No, he says over 40 days, there was convincing proof. 
that was convincing proof it happened. So, so the first thing we see here is proof, proof that Jesus is actually alive. Now, again, I don't know what your feelings are in this moment, but it's interesting, this week in our household, we, Elizabeth and I were talking about how, uh, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday, was 13 years since Steve Irwin passed away. I don't know if you uh, thought about that this week or, or talked about that, but in our household, we were remembering how with such a significant moment of Steve Irwin, you know, the great Australian icon, when he passed away, we remember exactly where we were. We remember the feelings that we had. We remember the experiences that we were experiencing. We remember exactly what happened. So I was at school. And I remember this moment, which is weird because I don't remember much at school from, from school. So I remember this moment. Uh, this kid came up to me and said, you know, Steve Irwin died. He got stung by a stingray. And I thought he was joking. And I didn't believe him. And so then I went home and, you know, it was all over the news and, you know, obviously confirmed. And I remember f the feeling that I had of like, this can't happen. He's not meant to go like this. Steve Irwin, he's... He's our hero. He's the icon that we know and love. But, but we were talking in our house this week about how the new youth kids who are coming through were born in 2007. And that makes us feel old. But not only that, they have no memory of Steve Irwin because he died in 2006. Right now, there's a difference in our feelings when we've experienced it to, to when we haven't. You know, so if you remember this morning and you can, you know, remember your experience 13 years ago, you might, you might know where you were when you heard the news. You might even have feelings provoked within you of, of when you heard the news. You might have fact-checked it. You might have sat and watched the news. You might have, you know, you might remember exactly what, where you were. And as you think about Steve Irwin, it's, it's producing something within you. But if you weren't born then, or if you were too young to remember that, you've probably got no feelings towards that event. You know, you probably don't even really know who Steve Irwin is or care who he is. You probably don't even, you know, understand why he was such a big deal. And, you know, if that's you, talk to your parents, because he was. <laughs> I mean, just watch the YouTube video where he gets bitten by a snake. That's a good video. Um, but see, there's a difference, right, in how we feel if we've experienced it to how we haven't. But regardless of how we feel towards the event, doesn't make the event any less true or any more true. 13 years ago, he did actually pass away. Now, it, it reminds me of what's going on here because what Luke is doing for us is speaking to these eyewitnesses who did feel it, who did experience it. They watched Jesus die on the cross. And then they got this feeling of seeing him alive. And they saw him, they ate with him, they felt the holes in his hands over and over again, over a period of 40 days. And Luke is saying, of their experience, it's convincing proof. Now, I know none of us have seen Jesus. You know, we weren't alive back then. It didn't happen 13 years ago. It happened 2,000 years ago. So we might not have seen Jesus. We might not have the feeling of witnessing him on the hill. But that doesn't make the event any less true. And Luke is doing the hard yards. He's going to the people who saw Jesus. And he's saying one by one, he's looking at them, he's speaking to them, he's asking them about their experience and about their stories. And what he's saying is, you know what? It's convincing. The proof about Jesus being alive is convincing. There is substantial evidence for it. So when we think about God being real, the first thing we see in this passage is that there's proof that Jesus is alive. Now, if you want to know more about the proof of the resurrection of Jesus, next week at the Life Course, we're actually hitting that. 
So come and talk to me and we can, you know, organize a seat for you and lunch for you because we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus next week and, you know, how we can know that it's true and real. We'll flesh out a little bit of what we've seen here this morning because the first thing we know when it comes to, is the God of the Bible real? Is He true? Is this the God we're putting our hope and trust in? comes down to this point, the proof of the resurrection. So that's the first thing we see in this passage, the proof of the resurrection, but we said there was two. And the second thing we see in this passage is the power of the Holy Spirit. We see this as we keep reading from verse 4. It says this, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. This is what um, we call the ascension, where Jesus left and went into heaven. And I know that it sounds a bit strange to think about Jesus disappearing in the sky, but he did just show that he died and rose again over a period of 40 days. Clearly, this is not a normal guy. You know, clearly this is someone else. This is God among them. And then we see this, verse 10. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them and said, Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Now, I love their question to them. They've just witnessed Jesus leave and they're looking at the sky. I feel like that justifies staring blankly into the sky because they've just seen him leave. But I don't think the angels are necessarily just paying them out here at this point. They're kind of saying to them, this shouldn't surprise you. Because, verse 11, you know, why do you stand here looking to the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, very clearly, there's something going on here, right? God's power is at work here. But when we think about, when we consider this question, how do we know God's real? What we're going to see is the second thing that we see in this passage. We know God's real. We see his presence. We see his revelation of himself in this moment in history because of the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he said, right? Over and over again in this passage, that's kind of the key, the big thing that's going on in this passage. He says, I'm going to promise to be with you. Now, this is the fleshing out of what we saw last week. If you were here with us last week, Jesus says, behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. This is Jesus fleshing out exactly what that looks like, right? God is Father, Son, and Spirit, and he's saying, I'm going to be with you with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to go with you. You're going to receive this power. Now, what does this power look like? Well, to describe what's going to go on here, Jesus uses this word, baptism. He says, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You're going to get this power. Now, last week, we saw uh, this moment last week. uh, We we got to witness a baptism. And uh, we got to watch Emily and Dave being baptized last week. And for their baptism, Ross poured a jug of water uh, onto their heads to symbolize, you know, that they're a part of this community. They belong to Jesus. I was talking to Dave after the service um, because before the service, uh, I was asking if he had a change of, you know, a change of shirt, change of clothes. And then after he didn't have to get changed and I asked him about that moment. He said it was good that Emily got to go first because she got drenched and then he could know exactly how to use the towel so that he didn't. 
So, Emily, thanks for being the sacrificial lamb last week and walking around wet for the rest of the day. Um, but we used the jug. Now, if we could have last week, we would have brought a pool in and dunked them in the pool. But just, you know, it's a bit hard uh, to do that. But if you haven't been here with, um, you know, if you weren't here last week and all you've seen at this church, all that comes to your mind is children, infants. We baptize babies. And to do that, you know, we're, we're celebrating. They belong to our community. We raise them to know Jesus. And when that happens, Ross uses a bowl of water and he splashes, you know, the water onto the head. It's more of a sprinkling. You know, Ross doesn't pour a jug of water on the baby's head. You know, we, we've never had a pool to dunk a baby into the pool. I mean, a few years ago, we had um, a four-year-old at the old house who, I remember, yeah, he was wearing his rashy and, like, jumped into the pool. He was loving it. Um, anyway, but, but generally, we don't do that, right? Now, the reason this matters is because depending on what thoughts you have when you think of baptism changes what Jesus is speaking about here. Right? Because if you're thinking, you might be thinking sprinkling, you might be thinking just a jug of water, or you might be thinking the, the immersion, you might be thinking dunking. And literally, this is important because literally the word that Jesus uses here when he's talking about baptism in this particular point is immersion. And so what he's saying is not when you get the Holy Spirit, you're going to get like a sprinkling of the Holy Spirit. You know, you're not going to get this little bit of the Holy Spirit that's going to splash over your head and you're gonna, barely going to know you're going to have any power. And he's not saying, you know, you're going to get a jug of water of the, the Spirit, right? It's going to be like that where, yeah, at the, the first point of it, you're going to have this power, but after a little while, you won't even notice it anymore. No, he's using this word immersion. And what he's saying here is, is literally this idea that when God comes, when God moves in this moment, he's going to move in such a way that's symbolic of immersion. He, he's saying you're going to be swimming in it. You're going to be swimming in power. You're going to be dunked in it. It's going to be like too much. It's going to be overflowing. The type of power you're going to get, you're going to be swimming in power. Now, this is why this matters. When we think about the nature of the disciples and the task they have at hand, it's quite unrealistic in many ways. So their task, we saw last week and again this week, is to make disciples of all nations. They are to go take the message of Jesus right around the world. Massive task. Not only that, but then you think about the nature, like you think about these guys, the disciples. It's not exactly the um, squad, if you could pick people to make a movement to change the world, this is not the squad that you would gather together. You know, really, these guys are a mixed group of, of guys that really, you know, some of them get what's going on and some of them don't. You know, some of them, some of them are charismatic, but use their charisma in weird ways. You know, some of them, they, they're just not really sure. I mean, you get Thomas. He's the perfect example. He, like, sees, he, he hears his, his mates that he trusts say, we saw Jesus, and he's like, I'm not going to believe you unless I see for myself. You know, we, we get this mixed group of guys gathered together. But not only that, like, just to make it super clear, it's not like they're funded either. This is not like, you know, someone standing behind them and saying, to do this, I've got private jets for you each. You're going to fly around the world, and that's how you're going to do this. You know, and we've bought strategic buildings around the place where um, you can, you just go into Samaria, and there's a couple of buildings set up there. Just go and meet in there. You know, they, they don't have the funding of, er of some rich dude. They don't have that going on. They're not the best group. This is not the, you know, crack squad that you would want to go and change the world. And so that's why it's so important of what Jesus is saying here. 
Because he's speaking to them, and you've got the task, the nature of make disciples of all nations, and then you've got the nature of these disciples. But what Jesus says to them is wait for the Holy Spirit, because there's going to come a moment where you'll be swimming in power. But see, where the disciples lack in maybe things that we would want if we wanted to start a movement that changed the world, what they gain or what they have is a deep dependence on God. What these disciples lack is pretty much everything, but what they have is a deep dependence on God, desperate for God to move. And we see this not just in these verses we had read out, but as we keep moving. See, chapter 1 finishes out, and, and, and we see it first and foremost on the screen. They're hanging out, the disciples, and then in verse 14, they all join together constantly in prayer along with the women. So it's not just the 12 guys there. There's women there as well. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers are there as well. They are desperate for God to work. They're constant in prayer. They are dependent on God. Chapter 1 finishes out with them replacing Judas, right? So already, again, you think of the mixed group of people. One of their guys betrayed Jesus. That's, you know, the level of people we're talking about. They replace him, and then chapter 2 happens. And in chapter 2, we see these disciples begin to swim in power. We see this in chapter 2. Chapter 2 begins, they're gathering together, and then you see in verse 3, what seemed like tongues of fire separated. So God is moving here, God's power is here. Verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. God is here, they are swimming in power because they begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now here in this verse, the other tongues is literally other languages. So this mixed group of people all of a sudden can start speaking in other languages. How does this happen? It's power. They are swimming in power. We see this in verse 5, right? So there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation. So it just so happens that all the nations are gathering in them for the festival of Pentecost. When they heard this sound, a crowd came. So they gather around together in bewilderment because each one of them heard their own language being spoken. So you've got this picture, right? The task ahead of them, the disciples, it seems like it's too much. God says, wait for power. Here we go. We've got the power. And then all of a sudden, what seemed like an impossible task a moment ago, now all of a sudden people from every nation who had gathered for this festival of Pentecost are here in this moment, hearing the message of Jesus in their own language. God is moving here in power. There is no way that these disciples could have done this without God's power. God is moving in power in these disciples. They are swimming in power. Then we get Peter. And Peter's journey, I mean, he is kind of representative of this mixed group of guys. Because Peter, his journey with Jesus is pretty classic. I mean, he does some good stuff, but he also does some pretty weird stuff. You know, there's even one point in the, the, the journey of Jesus where Peter gets called Satan. You know, like that's, that's a level of this guy, Peter. You know, he's, he's good, he's a follower of Jesus, but he sometimes makes stupid, he does stupid things. In fact, there's another point where Jesus is being beaten and, um, and, and a few times people ask Peter, don't you know this guy? And Peter three times denies Jesus and says, I don't know who he is because he was scared for his life. Peter then is in the room, locked of the room, scared for their life because they were scared after the death of Jesus that they were going to die. Peter is there when some worship and some doubt. Peter is there staring up into the sky. And yet, what we're about to see is God moving in Peter. This guy who was a fearful, he was scared, he was afraid, 
this guy who was this mixed bag, you know, without really a sense of clarity what's going on, here in Acts chapter 2, he gives this sermon, and it's unbelievable. This man has been transformed. God moved in him in great power, and we see this. So he gets up in chapter 2, verse 14 to speak, and then he speaks the, the craziest, most bold sermon I think you could ever see in history. So just to give you the context of it before we see what he says, he's talking to Jews. He's talking to this, this group of people who literally, like a couple of months earlier, killed Jesus. They were there, they yelled out, crucify. They spat at Jesus, they mocked Jesus, they laughed as Jesus died. And yet Peter gets out, once known for hiding in a room, scared for his life, he gets up and he says this, fellow Israelites, listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you uh, through him, as you yourself know. Then he says this, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. He's talking to people who killed Jesus, and he's saying, you guys killed Jesus. You killed the one God sent. But verse 40, uh, 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, think about how Peter can change from a guy hiding in his room, denying Jesus, into now a guy in front of thousands of people saying, you killed him. How does that happen? It's power. God is moving in Peter, in power. God is doing something. He's revealing himself in a way only God could do. And now Peter is swimming in power. But not only is God moving in these disciples, He's moving through the disciples. He's moving through them because you get to the end of Acts chapter 2. Peter says this, he says, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, who you killed, who you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, both God and King. He's saying to these, to these Jews, you killed Jesus, but actually He's God. Right now, what's their reaction going to be? You know, what do you think this, in this moment, what's their reaction going to be? Because you think they're going to start to yell out, crucify Peter. Right? That's the natural thing that would happen in this moment. That they would put Peter up, they would kill Peter, and that would be the end of Peter's story. I mean, that's the crowd, that's what they're known for, that's what they've done. But God is moving through Peter. And what we see is that that's not what happened, but verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brother, what sh brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do with this? I mean, we just killed Jesus, but now you're, it's convincing. We hear you. What shall we do? Peter replies, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then what we see at the end of this, verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. How does that happen? A moment ago, disciples in a room scared for their lives. A moment ago, disciples on a hill staring blankly into the sky wondering if they saw a UFO or a bird. Their task ahead of them to make disciples of all nations too big. And yet in one chapter, in the space of this movement here, this moment here, God moves in these people 
and 3,000 people are saved. How does it happen? It's power. They are swimming in power. They are swimming in power. God reveals himself. God works in this moment in a way that only God could do. These, this crowd, the Jews listening, once they killed Jesus, now they are listening. Now they are trusting in Jesus. Once they spat at him and mocked him and yelled out, crucified him, now they are being baptized saying, I belong to him. He's my king. So when we think about this question, you know, how do we know God is real? What Luke wants us to see is first and foremost, there's proof convincing proof of the resurrection as he spoke to eyewitnesses. The second thing he wants us to see is God moved in great power. In this moment in history, God did something only God could do. Now, as we think about it and reflect on this, the question for us is, what does this mean for us today? What does this all mean? I mean, this is great that God did this then, but what does this mean for us today in 2019? What does it mean for us today? Well, I think there's two things that it means for us. The first uh, and both relate to both of those points. The first is simple and small, but, but beautiful and powerful. The first thing it means for us in, in light of the proof of the resurrection is that we can be confident. We can be confident that Jesus is alive. We can be confident that God is working in this world, has revealed himself in Jesus. There is good evidence of it. We can be confident of the proof that Jesus is alive. So, so that's the first thing it means for us today. That as we go about in our faith or, you know, as we're wrestling with, is this thing for me on, on the journey towards life in Jesus, the first thing is we can be confident. But the second is we can trust in God's power. The second thing it means for us today is that we have God's power, that God's power is working in this world, that it, it's not just a back then thing, but this is happening today where God is moving in great power. Now, I was um, reading about this in a book this week called Movements That Change the World. Um, th this author, Steve Addison, what he did was he was looking at the, the Christian movements around the globe right now and throughout history where God moved in really powerful ways. And I was really impacted by the fact that God is moving in great power in similar ways to Acts uh, today. So he pointed to a few places. He pointed to uh, South Korea. He said, in, in South Korea, over a hundred years ago, you, um, barely any Christians in South Korea over a hundred years ago. Now, not only are there millions of Christians in, in, in South Korea, but South Korea have sent over 20,000 missionaries from South Korea to the rest of the world. How does something like that happen? It's power. It's God's power at work in this world. He then pointed to India. And in India, he said that he was talking to church planting networks in India and people who, you know, help church plants go out. And he was saying, you're not a serious player unless you've planted over 2,000 churches. So that's not 2,000 people, it's 2,000 churches. He said one guy in this network has a plan and a vision to see 100,000 churches planted in India, in his network. How does something like that happen? It's power. It's only when God works. He then pointed to China. I mean, we've heard a little bit about this recently, but he said um, in 2009, there were 60 to 80 million Christians in China. We heard a few weeks ago of Pastor David came from a, uh, he was a pastor in an underground Chinese church, and he was talking about how today there's the estimate, the number is over 100 million Christians today in China. Now, what really um, struck me as I was reading this book was when you start looking at the numbers, not just per year, not just that exist today, but when you actually do the numbers per year 
and then per day of people becoming Christians or identifying, saying that they belong to Jesus. And from those numbers, it's anywhere between 10,000 and 17,000 people are becoming Christians per day in China. Today. 10 to 17,000 people today will identify as belonging to Jesus in China. How does that happen? It's power. God is moving in this world now. God is moving in great power today. But see, as I was reading the book, the thing that really struck me was not just simply that God is working, but what this author did, Steve Addison, is he looked at and he wanted to pick the similarities and the, uh, the patterns between these movements. Right? So he was looking at the movements in South Korea and India and China, and then he was going back into history and looking at where the Christian faith took over and where the movements went out. And he even looked back to the book of Acts. And what he said was the pattern and the similarity is not what we would expect. See, when we think about, okay, what would it take for a movement in Australia? What would it take for a movement now to take over our country, to reach thousands of people? I feel like for me, what I would say in that moment, my gut reaction is you need, you need the right people. You need to get like the, the perfect, let's, um, let's go through Australia, let's, let's gather the, the top 20 Christians together and let's put them in a room, let's do something from that. I would think then we'd need lots of funding. We would need buildings in key locations. We would need money to travel if we're going to reach Australia. We're going to need um, to, to be able to do that. You know, we're going to need a lot of backing. We're going to need funding. We're going to need the, the right people in the right time at, a, at the right place. We don't want to go too early. We don't want to go now. We want to go, you know, maybe, maybe in a year's time will be a better time to go. That's what I would think in and of myself. But, but when he was looking at the patterns and the similarities between these movements, what struck me is he said it wasn't, that. It wasn't those things that was the key, you know, similarities between China and India and South Korea and throughout history and in Acts. No, the similarities and the patterns between these movements that changed the world was this, dependence on God. It was dependence on God where people were desperate for God to move. It's in this environment where people gather together desperate for God to move, devoted to prayer, that God moves. He says this. This is his quote. He says, White hot faith is the fuel that missionary movements run on. Nothing happens without a deep dependence on God. And nothing leads us into a healthy dependence on the power of God more than to come face to face with our desperate need of Him. Jesus is the apostle and pioneer of our faith. He led the way for us in surrender to the will of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. The great movements of the Christian faith are only unleashed through the, power and, uh, through the presence and power of God in the midst of His people who are faithful to His Word, led by His Spirit, and engaged in His mission. It is His harvest field. We are not passive bystanders, but active participants in what God is doing. We plant and we water, but God gives the growth. See what he's saying is he was looking at the movements that changed the world, the Christian movements that exploded where God moved powerfully among them. It was when the people realized we cannot do anything significant without God moving among us. We are desperate. God's power. We are dependent on His power. 
Now, it doesn't mean we sit back and do nothing. He says when we're not passive bystanders, we are active in it. We plant and we water, but we need God to give the growth. And so when we think about what it means for us today, we work hard in this. We work our butts off in this. We labor and strive to make disciples of all nations. But we are desperate for God to move among us. And not only are we desperate, we are dependent on Him to do so. Let's pray. God, as we come before you now in this moment, as we think about the nature of the task ahead of us, the call that you've given us to make disciples of all nations, and as we think about the reality of us, that, that we are broken people, that we are flawed, that we have cracks in our personality and in, in our actions, that we are sinful, that we aren't as good as we want to be. God, we want to recognize that the only way that we can do what we desperately want to do, the only way we can do that is if you work in power in your church. And so God, for the sake of our community, for the sake of our state, for the sake of our nation, Lord, we plead with you this morning, please, God, would you move in great power, not because of us, but because of your grace and your mercy. We pray that we would be a church where we are, in some ways, swimming in power, and where we would see the fruit of that with people coming to know and love Jesus. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.